Amen. We are grateful to share in the word of the Lord once again this week. Um, this is my third sermon of the day, so I'm grateful to the Lord for for this this final one. But we are truly grateful to the Lord for his goodness, grateful to be able to share in the word um, freely and, and openly in this way. I'm excited to continue our journey through First Samuel, as we're going to be looking at what exactly the cause and effect of sin is, and we're going to be pulling things together even more so this week than we've, that we've been pulling together for the past few weeks that we've been in First Samuel. So if you remember last week, we looked at what seemed to be the full culmination of the sins of the nation of Israel and that even of the sins of Eli, but what if I told you that their sins and their deaths were just the tip of the proverbial iceberg? I know that even saying the word sin for many of us may bring some serious feelings of discomfort as we all feel badly enough about having to deal with our sins personally, but even having to hear about them preached about every week may actually bring some feelings and some realities along with it. Now, don't get me wrong either. I know that it is difficult for us to deal with, but the Bible gives us the luxury of being able to deal with our own sins by dealing with the sins of the people in the Bible. Now, let me be clear, though. When we read about these people in the Bible, these are, in fact, real people. These are not stories. These are not made-up events. These are real events. And the reason that they have been written down is for our learning. But what we see happen really happened to all of these people. What we see happen with Eli, with Hophni, with Phinehas, with Hannah, with Elkanah, with Samuel, these are all real events, and they're written down so that we can learn from them. But what we see happen really happened to these people, and it would behoove us to pay attention. Now, we spoke about what happens eternally to the believer, to the unbeliever because of sin, but we also want to know what happens in the here and now of earth on this life. How far do the effects of our sins actually extend? What I want us to think about today is that even when we commit what we think is the simplest or smallest infraction against God, our sins do not just impact us in who we are but they impact all of the people around us. And they have the potential to affect much more than even the people in our framework. That is what we'll be working through today as we talk about the cause and the effect of sin. So look with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 4, starting in verse 12. 1 Samuel chapter 4, starting in verse 12. It says, A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the, day, the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of the God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is his uproar? Then the man hurried and came to and told Eli. Now Eli was not eight years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, 
I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled from before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she didn't answer or pay attention. And she said, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel. Because of the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for the word. It is um, just the complete opening up of your heart and who you are, God. And we just pray that as we navigate through the word today, that you will reveal yourself to us. Let us know you, God, in the fullness of who you are, in the fullness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that you will help us see today that even our sins, as small as we may think that they are, have a tremendous impact on our lives and the lives around us, and perhaps even more than that. Because so we, we ask that you would help us see what the only um, way for us to get out, and that's through the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, the kids um, and I like to watch Arthur, and in one episode, Arthur buys these really nice shoes, and when he buys these shoes, of course, he wants his friends to go see how nice they are, and they're expensive. And when he goes over there, if you know who Brain is, Brain is really smart, so he's always doing these experiments. And when they're doing this experiment, it ends up spilling, and he gets green slime all over his shoes. And Arthur loses it. I mean, he has a complete come apart. He yells, and when he walks out, he kicks a soccer ball that, unbeknownst to him, actually end up destroying the entire room where he had been. Now, it's not until later that he finds out that that one action had created a lot of destruction in that room, even though he actually never saw it. And it reminded me, you know, sin is just like this. This is the same way sin works in our lives. We tend to view sin in a bit of a prism, but the truth is that the effects of sin often extend much further than we may even initially be aware in our text, we have reached seemingly the apex of all the sin that we have talked about over the past few weeks. This is when the culmination of decades of sin will come up and God has rendered his verdict on the lives of those involved. Now, we know who are two very culpable people. We know Hophni and Phinehas have been doing some atrocious things. Well, they're dead. But the bearer of the news here presents that news in four stages. He says there is a battle. There are great casualties. 
Your sons are dead, and the ark has been captured. Now, the narrator makes it clear for us that the only, only the last piece of news seemed to be significant to Eli, that the fact that the ark had been captured. But why? Well, it's probably simple. He's 98 years old. He is probably resolved to the fact that there was no changing what God has spoken concerning his sons. God said that they were going to die, and he knew. I had to accept what God has spoken about this. He doesn't like it, but he knows that there is also culpability on his part as well. So with that, he has probably gone ahead and just accepted that there is nothing that he can do to change it. But the taking of the ark was different. It signifies something different for him. It signified that this sin, this sin that he allowed to be permitted in the life of his sons, this sin that we're going to find out that even he had partaken in, it was not something that just affected them, but it was finally something that he realized had affected all of Israel. And there was a price being paid for their sins. And so our first point for today's sermon is that the roots of sin run deep. The roots of sin run deep. And if you don't get anything else today, this is, you know, me speaking from experience in my own life, but also speaking a warning to all of us and myself whenever we feel tempted to commit even the smallest sin or infraction against God. There was this idea that the sins of these men would only affect and change their lives, but they're wrong. One of the things that we've learned about sin is that the embers of its fire actually become great flames very quickly, and they destroy things even quicker. Last week I mentioned that sin makes us stupid, but it does that because sin also deceives us. It makes us think, oh, no one else will know that I'm even doing this that this is even going on. It is only one time, but when we sin, even when we don't realize it, we are laying down roots. How do we know we're laying down roots? What does Jesus tell us from John 8, 34? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The Bible lets us know that we don't have the luxury of just sinning and letting it go, but sin actually enslaves us. It entraps us. And when you become a slave to sin and when it is rooting our lives, then the fruit that we bear quickly begins to affect the lives of those around us. This is one of the reasons that we are told that we will know the tree by the type of fruit that that tree will bear. There is no case where an apple tree is producing oranges. And if said tree could talk, you would say, you are confused. Because I know what you say regarding what you are, but the evidence is what you are producing. We are told that the type of fruit that we bear is also bearing witness that we are living contrary or in right in line with the truth. But not only do we bear fruit of the Spirit, 
The Bible makes it clear that the works of the flesh are also made evident in our lives. Now, I refer to David's sin a lot, but I really think it shows us so much. And it shows us the pattern of how sin gets rooted in our lives. In his life, it really just starts with pride. He grown to feel the pride of being king. And as that pride set in, the roots started to grow. It is akin to all of the great leaders who start off in pastoral ministry, humble and considerate of the word of God. But when that first root of pride grows in, more roots of sin grow. He grown to feel the pride of being king. And as that pride set in, the other roots started to grow. He no longer wanted to do the things that are expected of a king, but he wanted to do the things that inflated him in his own pride. How does this affect his life? Well, when all the other men were off to battle, when they were fighting, the king who should have been there leading the charge, which even King Saul in his wickedness, he was in the battle. But David, when they all were fighting and he should have been there, he was at his mansion. He wasn't where he was supposed to be because he had probably decided, well, a battle is too risky for a king. So he forsakes his post. But because he feels his pride and because he's not where he's supposed to be, he's walking on a roof of said mansion and there he sees Bathsheba. And in the moment, out of that root of pride, because he wasn't where he was supposed to be, now a root of lust has grown. But it's not just lust, however. This is actually another man's wife. And so he doesn't just feel lust, but he's also coveting her. And so now a root of covetousness has grown. And he has to have her. So he sins for her and he gets her. And now roots of adultery and fornication are growing in his life. And once he has her, he now has to cover the sin because she's pregnant. And so now roots of lying and deception are sown. He falsely befriends her husband so that he can get away with it. Roots of flattery. Finally, he decides to put him on the front line so that he will die. And as he does this, the final root is grown and grounded in his life, and it is a root of murder. Look how that little root of pride no longer just affected the life of David, but it exploded beyond control and beyond him and his measure. And the works of his flesh were made clear to all. When Eli learns of the capturing of the ark, I believe his response was because he never thought that the sins of his two sons could end up affecting the entire nation of Israel. And so our first point is that the roots of sin run deep. Our second point is that secret sins don't stay secret long. In my, again, short experience in life, one thing that I have learned about sin is that even the most secret of secret sins, they're not really secrets. They don't stay hidden long. They come out, and they usually come out in the worst and most dramatic ways. When Hophni and Phinehas die, their sin was well known 
though they had not yet been held accountable for it. The people knew that they were profaning the priesthood, but I wonder did they know that Eli had a secret sin as well. I wonder if any of you knew that. I mentioned to you a while back, and you got to keep, keep in track with these sermons. I mentioned to you a while back that there was something interesting about the fact that his sons were pilfering meat. Out of all the wickedness that they were doing, why was that mentioned? That seemed to me to be the least of all their sins. And they probably didn't mention all the other sins that they were committing. So why, if they were having sex in the temple, did it mention, and by the way, they were pilfering meat. I also alluded to the fact that Eli isn't as guiltless as he probably wanted to appear to be. Now, I've said this before, but it is important and, and worth noting. Nothing in the Bible is mentioned by accident. There are no superfluous words. There are none, no extra verses. Either the Bible is going to be really insensitive here, politically incorrect, or there is a reason behind what it mentions right here. Look at what it says about him. Look at what it says about Eli. Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. Why in the world would it mention his weight? The Bible does not make a habit of just mentioning people's weight, by the way. So why Eli? Well, you think about it. There's only one woman whose age is mentioned in the Bible, and that's Sarah, because it was significant. It was significant that she was bearing a child in the age that she was bearing a child. So the fact that it mentions the weight of Eli means that it's significant. Why is this mentioned? Because Eli was not just a casual observer of his son's sins. But he was probably partaking when they were taking the meat without actually offering it. He was sinning just like they were. Perhaps his sin wasn't so secret, but he thought it was. He probably thought, no one knows that I'm taking this meat. But every passing year, he got bigger and bigger. And while they may not have seen the sin, they saw the effects of the sin. See, even if we can cover our sins for a while, we cannot hide the effects that sin has on us. We can try. Try as we might, it comes out. There is this bondage. There is this burden that we must bear when we are trying to hide our sins from others. But it doesn't always immediately come out in that dramatic, traumatic way, right? Usually, it's subtle changes in a person's behavior. It is that husband who is suddenly sheltering his phone. It is that wife who, out of nowhere, has become overly accusatory. It is that son who is growing more and more anxious. And it is that daughter who suddenly can't control her anger anymore. Sin cannot hide itself for too long. Look how far this sin goes. The sons of Eli, the sons are dead. 
Eli is dead. The ark is captured. The wife of Phineas is dead. But she's so distraught that before she gives birth, she thinks, I need to stamp my son in such a way to communicate the utter despair of this time. And she names her son Ichabod, declaring that the glory of God had departed. There was the utter desolation of sin, but there was the utter helplessness and hopelessness that left a dying woman to permanently mark her son in this way. Listen, if you are in this room, if you are alive, all of us has been down bad. I'm talking every single one of us at some point has been down bad in our sins, in the muck and miry clay of our sin. All of us have felt that our sins have left us broken, that they have left us useless, that they have shamed us, embarrassed us. They have left us in that same desolation, that same despair, that same helplessness, that same hopelessness that she feels. We have all felt that. So where do we go from here? Where do we go when we have felt the pit of our sin the way she felt, the way they felt? Is our final point. There is hope in the gospel. There is hope in the gospel. I quoted from Hebrews 1 a few weeks ago, and I want to quote from it again so we can see what our hope is. Hebrews 1 and 3, referring to Jesus, it says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Inasmuch as the glory departed from Israel when the ark of God was captured as a result of their sin, as a result of our sin, the glory of God has appeared to us and has actually given us freedom from our sinful and helpless and hopeless state. The Bible says that when we were apart from Christ, that is when we did not have a hope. Their sin brought about hopelessness, but our sin through Jesus has brought him to the cross and given us an eternal hope. We were all equally dead in our sins, and there was no glory to be found in us. There was no glory, no worth to be found in our lives. But God, in his grace and his mercy, sent glory down to us. Glory had departed from Israel, but glory came down and tabernacled with us as the only begotten of the Father. He being the exact imprint of who the Father is and in his radiance. And he has redeemed us from our sins. He has absorbed the wrath of God that was intended for us for all of eternity. 
We see many places in the Bible where there are bountiful sins, the punishment of those sins in the wrath of God. Whether it is Adam and Eve being thrown from the garden, whether it's Cain being cursed for the rest of his life, whether it's God sending the flood, we see and we know that God's just response to sin is his wrath. And we see in the Bible that he has poured out his wrath with fury, but with justice. Death and destruction have followed sin as a result of God's wrath. So where is the hope? Where is the hope? That utter hopelessness and helplessness that we should feel has been taken away. You know where that hopelessness and that helplessness was? It was on the cross. When Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? He is communicating that utter helplessness and hopelessness that I should be enduring right now. He bore it on the cross on our behalf. Because he who knew no sin became sin so that we who knew no righteousness might become the righteousness of God. In one sense, we fear God because he is the only one who has the power to condemn us to hell. And we fear him. We revere him for that. We know the sheer power of his wrath, and hell is utter desolation. There's no returning. We learned about the rich young ruler. There is no coming back from that. But we hope in him, because if we have been redeemed, we will actually never have to endure that desolation. If we are redeemed... We will never have to endure the full effect and impact of our sins. And I don't know about you, but I'd be willing to put my sins up against anybody else's sins in these rooms and say, mine outnumber yours. But what we have been promised in the gospel, where our sins are many, his mercy is more. So what is the ultimate cause and effect well we see with the sons of Eli and with Eli the cause of everything that they did affected the entire nation their sins affected everything around them but there's a new cause and effect one that I don't really even know how to to grasp is that our sin that's the cause my sin (laughs) sent Jesus to a Christ, to a cross, to suffer. And the effect is that somehow, miraculously, even though it was my sin that caused him to go to the cross, somehow the effect is that we're saved. How can you reconcile that? This is why the cross of Christ is foolishness to the Gentiles, and it's fallen to the Jews. But to those of us who believe, it is salvation. It is the greatest 
cause and effect. And I'll tell you now, the effect doesn't equal up to what the cause is. The cause of my sin should be death. But somehow, the effect of my sin is salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that even as we read about the the great sin of Eli and his sons and the great effect of it, God, every one of us has had to bear the cause that we sent Jesus to a cross. We sent him to a cross. But somehow in us sending him to a cross, him being crucified, that has brought about the effect of eternal life in us. God, we, we don't deserve it. We deserve the full weight and the penalty, the just wrath that you would bring upon our sins. We have earned that rightfully. But God, you have taken that away for those of us who believe. But God, for those of us who do not believe, Our sin caused you to go to the cross, but the effect of that sin will be death. It will be eternal separation and damnation. So God, if there is anybody who is in here today who is watching, who is facing the effect of their sin, who is facing condemnation, who is sterile, staring right down the barrel of that condemnation, that they would learn from what happened with Eli, his sons. They will learn what happens when, son, when sin goes unmitigated. That there is a price to be paid. But Jesus has already paid that ultimate price. And God, it is in this that we hope. It is in this that we trust. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.